Well, Beth and I last weekend were up in New York City. It's been such a long week. I can't remember what we were up there for, but we added a, uh, it's like a wedding or something. Oh, yeah. Brian Watts' wedding. That's right. That's what it was. And uh, we went up a day early and went to the 9-11 memorial. You've never done that. It's a necessary thing to do. It's, a, it's kind of a painful thing to do. We spent the morning uh, just walking around and remembering that day. And on the way out, going up the escalator, a song was playing, Amazing Grace, right there in the middle of New York City, right there in the middle of Rome, right there in the middle of Babylon, <laughs> right there in the center memorial of one of the, the biggest events in the country's history. Amazing Grace themes the exit of the memorial. It resonates with us. Grace, the message of grace resonates with us. Now, maybe you're not real thrilled about the idea of looking at the Reformation and, and you don't care about the fact that, that 500 years have passed since Martin Luther, whoever that was, nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, all right, to confront the Pope about a bunch of things. And maybe that's not very interesting to you and doesn't suck you in, but that message of grace was restored to the church because of some bold and brave souls. Not only restored to the church at that time, but restored what takes us back and back and back again to the central message of the gospel. One of the, the verses that shaped the Reformation is this, from Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, bless us now to receive your word, not only into our heads to understand it, but into our hearts to believe it and through our hands to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you we had a, a poodle growing up, a poodle, standard poodle. Now, this was a, sort of a schizophrenic poodle, sort of half, sort of athlete, half, you know, prima donna. And, uh, and she loved to swim. And so if, if we ever had, uh, we're out on the lake and ever had uh, a boat out, like, uh, like we had a little sunfish. It was really a phantom, a little bigger than a sunfish. She would come swimming up and she'd get her paws up on the side. And if you put your head on the, hand on the back of her head, she'd push against it and be able to crawl into the boat. If you're, try that next time with your dog swimming around. Just put your hand and see what happens. They, they have sort of an instinct to pull up.
Well, Charky had never been up on uh, the Phantom before on the sailboat. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cruising along, and, and she stands up, and all of a sudden the wind shifts directions, and the boom comes around, and it's, that's why they call it a boom, right? Boom! Knocks Charky right off into the water. And she's looking at me, and she looks at me, she looks back at the, the shore, she looks back at me, and she looks back at the shore, and she starts swimming for the shore. <laughs> and I just kind of imagine her, when I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, she's thinking, I have never been more offended in all my life. That's what poodles think, you know? That's what they think. Because they're poodles, okay, people? They're poodles. I've never been more offended in all my life. That was my charky story for today. There'll be more. Just hang on. There'll be more. The idea that, that the, the, the church is a boat, that's what I want to put into your minds. That picture of the church as a boat, like a sailboat. It's been an ancient image of the church for a long, long time. In fact, they used to, uh, to build churches to look more like ships. And, and the different parts of the, the sanctuary were emblematic of a ship. And, and one of the reasons, it's, it's even one of the reasons that they refer to people on a ship as souls. So even today, if you go on to, you know, Princess Cruise Lines or whatever, and you ask, you know, the captain how many people on the ship, he'll say, you know, 1,200 souls, right? The ship, the ship, is called to be in the sea. But beware of the ship when the sea begins to get into it. How do we keep our fellowship, our church, ourselves on course during turbulent times? That's the central question of this sermon and also of the Reformation. How do we bring as you, as you picture that ship being tossed by waves, being pulled in this direction by winds, how do we continue to bring the bow back to the gospel again and again and again? How do we do that? How do we keep our ship on course during turbulent times? Well, here, here's how you do it. We have to keep one eye on the North Star, and one eye on the horizon. Now, let me tell you what I'm talking about. First of all, we have to keep an eye on the North Star. A lot of people think that the North Star is the brightest star in the sky because there's a song that says that. No, it's not true. The North Star is called the North Star because it is, it sits in the sky right above the North Pole. And it's the only star around there. It's a, bright, it's a bright star, but not that bright. But it doesn't move. And so it sits in over the, the, the top of the North Pole. And so when you're navigating at night, you know where North is. If you can find the North Star, it's always in the North. Now, what is that? It, that that's a picture for us this morning of something. What is it? It's a picture of what we're about, what identifies us, that never changes. And so, 
in order to keep our, our ship steered in the right direction, in order for you to keep yourself steered in the right direction, you have to keep an eye on the North Star and an eye on the horizon. The eye on the North Star is this. It is to be uncompromising about our message because our message is a power. It's not just a position. It's not just a point of view. The message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power to change the human heart. C.S. Lewis walked into a group of scholars and they were arguing over what distinguished Christianity from all other faiths. And he said, don't be ridiculous. It's absolutely simple. The answer is grace. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is God's unmerited favor. Grace. It's the idea that we receive from him what we need that we can't supply for ourselves. It's the idea that God does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's the idea that there's a universal problem with humanity and we feel it, sometimes we feel it intensely and sometimes we just sort of scathe over it. But there is a universal problem that God solves and he solves it by his grace, his unmerited favor. Now, unfortunately, though, the ship began to, to, to steer away from grace. We know it's a universal, we resonate with this message of grace, with God's unmerited favor. But, but in the 13th and 14th centuries, 15th centuries, the church was straying away from grace. And in 1500, around that time, the reformers, some people, some brave men began to confront the power of the church. You see, what, what had happened was they began to, to protect, quote, in quotes, they began to shield the congregation from the real message of the Bible. And you say, well, how did they do that? Well, because nobody had a Bible except for the priests. There was the Latin Vulgate, and that was, that was the translation of the original Greek. And, and they would read it, and only people who were the super elite knew what it said. And so they began to use, instead of, instead of trusting in the power of the gospel to change the human heart, they began to manipulate the people by their guilt. See, the need is there, right? There's a need on a day when you're mowing the lawn or you're at practice and it's hot. There's a need, right? It's called thirst. And there's one thing that you want when you're really, really thirsty you don't want a Coke, you don't want a Mountain Dew, you don't want orange juice, you, don't want a, you, you just want cold water, right? When you're the thirstiest you've ever been, the thing you want is water. And deep, deep down we know that the greatest need that we have, the thirst that we have, is guilt. It, 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 it presents itself in the form of guilt. And the gospel of grace is the quenching of that thirst. But the church began to manipulate the congregations with guilt 
And what they did was they said, if, if you want to be absolved of this guilt, if you want to drink of cold water, then you need to buy what are called indulgences. And these are pieces of paper, certificates that they could then present in the church uh, for resol- uh, absolution of their sin, right? And so, you know, so it's like those, those you know, it used to be that Coke bottles were worth something. So you take the Coke bottle back and you get 10 cents back. It's kind of like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this indulgence in there. I had to pay for it uh, and I'm going to give it. And, and they say, well, you, you've got forgiveness now. Completely the opposite of grace. It's called works, works righteousness. There's a guy, I love this story of Thomas Lineker. Thomas Lineker was, uh, was a physician to the king, but he was also a scholar who understood Greek, who read Greek, and somebody gave him a copy of, of one of the gospels, uh, the gospel of Mark or Matthew, in Greek. And he read it, and there's this famous line after he read it. He said to his friends, and he said to a lot of people, and it, it began to get out, he said, either this is not the gospel, or we're not Christians. In other words, we've missed it. We've missed the gospel of grace. What does that gospel of grace, and why is it so precious? And why is it central? Why is the gospel of grace central? Why is it the North Star that we need to keep our eye upon, that needs to define our life together? Why? Let me tell you a story that I think will help you not only understand the gospel better, but feel it in your bones. There's a, a girl, Jenny, who had been in foster care for all of her life. And she finally got her forever family. That's what they call it, her forever family. He was a pastor. And he was going to take his family to Disney World. And in the month leading up to the trip, she began to act out, rebel. She was, she was saying things that were deeply hurtful to her sister, that she knew the right buttons to push that would bring her pain and shame. She, she, she did things that were seemingly out of character, things that she left undone, things that she normally would do, and she did all kinds of things that she normally would not do. And her father came and, and, and said, would you sit down on my lap? He said, you know, we're, we're going to Disney World. Um, and she said, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me that I'm not going. And he said, why would you think that? She said, well, the last three times and last three foster homes I was in, when they went to Disney World, I stayed home. He said, Jenny, are you a member of this family? She said, yes, I am. He said, well, our family is going to Disney World, and you're going with us. So they went to Disney World, and Jenny continued to act out. He thought that taking her there would help her to calm down. But at the end of the day, she came in, she was exhausted, and she was changed. She lied down, and she said, 
to her father. She said, he said, did you have a good day? She said, yes. He said, and she said, I know why you brought me to Disney World. It's not because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Now, do you understand? Can you see the moment where a young girl who had so much pain and hurt and disconnect from her family finally understands what it means to be loved, to be a part of a family. If you feel brokenhearted for that girl, then you understand the gospel. That's the message of grace, unmerited favor. And you see what happens is when you are, when you experience that love of God, not just understand it, someone tells you and explains it to you, but when you experience it personally, you understand, I am yours. Guess what comes with it? All the rest of the law. You see, Romans, Romans right here says it very well. It says, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, what does that mean? It means God's righteousness in Christ is revealed. God's righteousness is revealed when you experience the love of Christ and are unfolded into the family. God's righteousness is revealed to you, in you, and then it's revealed through you. What happens is, and then Jenny was a changed girl after that. She didn't obey in order to be loved, but because she was loved, she began to obey. That's the difference between Christian faith and every other faith. Every other faith says, obey and you'll be loved. Christianity says, you're loved, folded in, and out of, any, out of your deep heart change, you begin to line up with God's best. See, that's our North Star. That's what can't be lost. Now, but today... Just as in 14, 13, 14, 1500, before Martin Luther confronted the fact that we were shifted away from that beautiful picture I just painted, before they, they began to guilt people in order to control people. You know, that's happening not within the church today. It's happening outside the church today. Now, whereas in, in 14, 1500, the moral high ground of the elites in the church, the moral high ground was for the state to have power, right? That was the point. Manipulate the people with their guilt, control them for the state. Today, what's happening, and I'm seeing it everywhere, is that people's guilt is being used against them in manipulation for the cause. Not the state, 
but the cause. I remember being in Harvard Square one time, and I couldn't believe, you know, the stereotype is that it's an old Volvo or an old Subaru. I don't know what it was, but it probably was one of those. And I'm not against Volvos and Subaru, great cars, but they tend to have bumper stickers on the back of them, right? And so you know it's true. I mean, come on, you know it's true. And like there was not a postage stamp of room on the back of this this car, it was just covered with bumper stickers that looked like there were bumper stickers on bumper stickers on bumper stickers. Someone said, whoever marries the spirit of this age will be a widow or a widower in the next. Causes move. They're not fixed in the sky like, like the North Star. Causes move. And if we begin to allow people to manipulate us out of a sense of guilt so that they will have the moral high ground, we won't get better, we'll just be better than. If, if you're the one doing it or if you're the one who, who is, is championing yourself on the back of some underdog, that's what's happening. Your foot is on the neck of some underdog and you're putting yourself up. You're not better. You may feel better than, but you're not better. But the gospel's being threatened by this kind of movement, by this kind of external pressure to chase after every human cause. Whether it's on the left or on the right, we can lose our way by missing the North Star, by beginning to think that we have to line up with a certain set of behaviors, whether they're on the left or the right, and that somehow that's going to make us okay. It's nothing but power, either to the state or to the cause. It's happening, and it's highly influential. It's influencing even friends of mine who are older than I am, who are pastors. And I'm watching them get sucked into this, and they're leaving the gospel behind. They're missing their North Star. You can't compromise on this stuff. You can't compromise on the gospel. Second, we have to keep an eye not only on the fixed point in the sky, the North Star, we can't compromise on the gospel, the central message of grace. We have to keep our eye on on the horizon. Now, so it's two things. It's, it's that we have things that we don't change. They are non-negotiable in the church, but we also have to remain relevant. We have to keep an eye on the North Star. We also have to keep an eye on the horizon. What's coming at us? What are we dealing with today? We have to learn how to take this beautiful message that has been entrusted to us and apply it in relevant ways. John Stott was talking to a couple of, of uh, college students, and he was proving to them that, that the scriptures were based on reliable sources. And they said, you know what? We believe you, but we don't care. We don't care if Christianity is real until we see that it's relevant. How is it relevant? So we have to not only understand what doesn't change, what's non-negotiable. We have to understand how do we apply this beauty 
to current events. Not to be influenced by them, but to influence them with the gospel. You know, there, there are churches, and I, I'm, I'm going to come close to maybe picking on somebody here, but there are churches that, um, that are King James-only churches. Now, we have blind spots. We have all kinds of things wrong with our church, right? And I want to fix every one of them, and so do you. But I don't want to pick on us this morning. I, I, I want to pick on somebody else. And I don't know who they are, but they're, somebody else, they're somewhere far away. And, and they will only read the King James. And they don't know that the King James came from somewhere. They came from, the King James was a translation into English from the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. And you know, after the King James was, was published, a lot more manuscripts were found. And so our, our sources were better for these later translations like the NIV and the ESV. But it was a tradition of the church. And when you speaketh like thisith, it begins to become sort of holy and sacred. And you think, as long as I'm saying thee, thou, and thou, I'm being spiritual. And you know what? There are some places that still hold to that. And guess what? They're making themselves irrelevant. The place for the ship is at sea. We don't want the sea to get into the ship, but the place for the ship is at the sea. And so we need to continually try to retranslate what does not change to apply it to all this turbulence around us. And that's what the Reformation brought. Do you see? We're called to embrace a life of constant renewal, where we're singing to the Lord a new song, where our eye is on the horizon. And like Paul, when he said, uh, not only is this message to the Jew, but also to the Greek, what does he mean by that? Well, in Acts chapter 17, he demonstrates exactly what he means by that. He takes the gospel and he begins he begins to pull out of the culture, of the Greek culture in Athens. He says, some of the most popular songwriters, poets, maybe I can speak the, the unchanging message that we have through their very words. And he does. He says, as your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. He's teaching the Greek culture with their own, the own truth that has, has just sort of bubbled up. He's teaching them with, with their own arts and sciences. He's teaching them the gospel to worship God in grace and in truth. And so the cause can become a platform for the gospel. Now, here's the tricky thing. This is what you see. And, it's, and it seems nuanced at first, but then you realize what I'm about to tell you, you're seeing it all the time. You're reading it. You're seeing it in the news. You're seeing it on social media. You're hearing people say it. And it's a very subtle thing at first, but then you realize it is a massive difference between the two. And what are these two things that are contrasting each other? It's whether or not you're using the, the cause as a platform to champion the timeless truth of the gospel or whether or not you're using the gospel to manipulate people for a cause. 
I think of Martin Luther King Jr. and how, how he addressed the issues of inequity in terms of race. He was very confrontational. But what comes across to me is that Martin Luther King had a bigger message than just a here and now message. That Martin Luther King Jr., that Martin Luther King Jr. had the gospel in mind when he said, look, there are problems and our gospel speaks to the problems. But I'm not going to use the gospel to manipulate people just for a human end. I'm going to use these human problems to illuminate the common problem that we all have, to elevate everyone, not just one group. And so you see what's happening today is that's being reversed. We're cashing in the beauty that we have received in order to just achieve some short-term fix in the culture, some inequity. Instead, we're called to recognize that everyone around us is a soul with a need. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Soul, listen, this applies right to what I was just saying, the difference between using a cause as a platform of the gospel or the gospel to manipulate for a cause. He, he, he speaks right to it. He says, soul is a barrier against reduction, against human life reduced to biology, biology and genitals. Yeah, I just said that. Culture, utility, race, and ethnicity, soul is a barrier against reducing us to those things. Ah. You don't understand why I'm so upset about it. Because we're reducing. Because every cause you're seeing today reduces us down to something that's less than a human soul. It signals an interiority that permeates all exteriority, an invisibility that everywhere inhabits visibility. Soul carries with it resonances of God-created, God-sustained, and God-blessedness. It is our most comprehensive term for designated the core being of men and women, and yet we're championing causes that reduce people down from being a soul. And so we have to keep an eye on the North Star and an eye on the horizon that we can engage just as I have. I'm not beating up anyone's cause, but I'm beating up the cause as a means to a human end. Instead, we need the gospel spoken into people's lives. People who our souls need a touch of the master's hand. What's that? Let me read it to you. Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folk, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar? Then two, two, two dollars, who'll make it three? Going for three, but no. 
For from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling of angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, Now what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars, who'll make it two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, it's going, it's gone, cried he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not understand. What changed its worth? Quick came the reply, a touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful picture of grace stretched out on a cross, brought forth from a tomb, felt and experienced in exchange of sin for you, the righteousness of God. We pray in Jesus' name.